Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. He's calling in from Israel today. Walter, where are you exactly? I'm in Tel Aviv. Fortunately, the um, my plane got in before the ceasefire ended this morning, so uh, uh, didn't didn't have any trouble of that kind. But Tel Aviv is a little quieter than it usually is. I bet. Well, we'll get into that more in the big conversation. But first, let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. The U.S. government has stopped warning some social media networks about what it calls foreign disinformation campaigns on their platforms. According to the Washington Post, Meta no longer receives notifications of global influence campaigns from the Biden administration, and federal agencies have also stopped communicating about disinformation with Pinterest. All this follows a decision by a federal judge in July to limit the administration's communications with tech platforms in response to a lawsuit alleging such coordination ran afoul of the First Amendment by encouraging companies to remove falsehoods about COVID-19 in the 2020 election. That case, Missouri versus Biden, is now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Walter, news or phone news? Well, I guess we're going to have to wait until we see what the uh, Supreme Court rules on it. It's certainly an interesting tangle. On the one hand, uh, you do sort of feel that if foreign governments are deliberately spreading uh, damaging disinformation, uh, somebody ought to be alerting people to this, and people ought to have the chance to do something about it. On the other hand, it does seem a little bit creepy to have the federal government be the one telling social media companies, especially, say, in the run-up to an election, that a certain piece of news is disinformation and should be suppressed on their platform so we're we're sort of up in this in this bizarre world where uh nobody trusts anybody and with good reason because there's a lot of lies and misinformation out there but the whole question is so is so charged and so partisan that there doesn't seem to be anybody who's trusted to to act as a kind of an arbiter here. All right, our second story. Since the last time we spoke, Walter, Javier Millet was elected president of Argentina, but since even then, he's undergone something of a transformation. As a candidate, he promised to scrap the peso, burn down the central bank, cut ties with Argentina's biggest trading partners, insulted seemingly anyone within range. But as Mary Williams Walsh wrote this week in News Items, Malay has since said he just wants to restructure the central bank, not burn it down. He's gone a bit quiet on his signature plan to dollarize the economy. He's patched things up with former rivals like Patricia Bullrich and Mauricio Macri. And yet this week, he has also called an extraordinary legislative session to begin what he calls Argentina's shock therapy. So Javier Malay, Walter, is this chaos? Is it order? Is it just Argentina only more so? Is it news or phone news? It's it, certainly Argentina is now going through. Argentina has gone through these cycles. I remember. I, I think I first went to Argentina. I think it was in the late 1980s, and at the time they were having one of their many bouts of inflation, and the peso had fallen to uh, 640 to the dollar. And I remember I was standing on the steps of the main cathedral downtown, looking. And there was a family of beggars sitting next to me on the steps, uh, 
uh, you know, as people often do on a cathedral. And there, in the wind, one peso notes were blowing in the wind. Each 641 pesos was equal to $1. The beggars were not even bothering to snatch the one peso notes out of the wind. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't disagree <laughs> with their logic, but I, I remember, uh, you know, it was, it was really, the inflation was just frantic in, in those days. And they're, I think they're up to something like 200% are expected to be there by the end of this year, um, end of this month. So it's, it's a mess, but Argentina is so, so deeply uh, disordered. When I think about it, I try to picture help americans picture what's happening and sort of at the, at the center of 20th century american history have this couple eleanor and franklin roosevelt imagine if instead jimmy hoffa had married marilyn monroe and that that was the sort of political center of the united states in the 20th century that's kind of argentina with juan peron and eva Peron. And at the same time, we've had this kind of populism uh, around, uh, you know, the, the Peronist establishment, except for the occasional coup and the occasional kind of revolt, has has basically been running the country into the ground since World War II. And I don't see, I, I think the odds are against a successful change. There are a lot of institutions, a lot of very powerful people in Argentina who have made their peace with the system and make a really good living out of it. Uh, so I think he's, he faces a real uphill struggle. The last president who really tried to break free from the cycle was Carlos Menem, who, who tried to, in a way, dollarize the peso by... Um, by sort of having a very rigid exchange rate, ultimately because he his policies he wouldn't adopt the fiscal or other policies necessary to make that work. Uh, the peg collapsed and and the Peronists came back. See, we told you so. We're the only people who know how to make this crazy place work. So it's 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 one of the real tragedies. It's it's the greatest example of a country that that could be rich, but culture makes it poor. Argentines have a set of ideas about how the world works and how the economy works. And they those ideas just don't, cars, don't yield good results. But the fact that they don't yield good results has not really been enough to persuade Argentines that there's something wrong with the way they think. So we'll see, you know, is Argentina gonna go through the cycle again or, or are they finally going to get sick of it? I think I remember hearing a joke at one point, and a joke that originated in Argentina, that when God was creating the country, the angels came to him and said, are you sure you want to give one country all of these natural resources? And God responded, you haven't yet seen the Argentines. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a little bit interesting that uh, some of the people who were the most upset with uh, Malay's victory were some of our, our nouveau populists here in the United States who basically sort of the mix of industrial policy, protectionism, and so on. They basically want America to look like more like Argentina. <laughs> and and there have been a lot of denunciations. He's a false populist. 
He doesn't have crazy economic ideas that will ruin the country. He's not a real <laughs> populist at all. So we, I think we, we do need to watch out. There is a kind of creeping peronismo here in the United States. Uh, it's long been it's it's long been entrenched on the kind of social democratic left. But what we are seeing now is that uh, we've got some folks on the right who are trying to kind of in, in a kind of bidding war. Who are the real Peronists? This is exactly, by the way, what you see in Argentina, where you have right Peronismo and left Peronismo. Um, you know, sort of communists and fascists, actually, sort of claiming the mantle of this great hero. Final story of the week. Walter, and it's just what we all needed. North and South Korea have reportedly deployed heavy military equipment along the demilitarized zone, while North Korea has also begun the reconstruction of guard posts and other military sites in the areas of the DMZ that had previously been destroyed under the 2018 Inter-Korean Military Pact. South Korean intelligence believes that the North may soon begin to deploy a variety of heavy offensive weapons to the border, so South Korean artillery and armored brigades have been placed into a heightened state of readiness. Is this news or faux news? It is probably just the usual posturing. And, you know, the Korean frontier has not moved an inch. The DMZ has not moved an inch in either direction since 1953. And But there's been a lot of bluster and a lot of storm along the way. However, one has to note that at a time when international order is, is visibly weakening, uh, old kinds of deterrence are, are visibly failing all over the world, that every flashpoint is dangerous than it used to be. So um, uh, what's going on there? It is bad news. It is bad news. And it does not, um, with North Korea now, more closely aligned with Russia, which is sort of far more of an adventurous power, much more interested in stirring up trouble, wouldn't bother Putin at all if the United States suddenly had to deal with a problem on the Korean peninsula, as well as in the Middle East, as well as in Ukraine. It wouldn't bother Putin at all. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So you're in Israel right now, Walter, where U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken attended a meeting of the War Cabinet yesterday. And according to leaked remarks, Blinken told Israel it cannot operate in southern Gaza in the way it has done in the north and indicated that Israel has weeks, not months, to complete its declared mission of destroying Hamas. According to the Times of Israel, Blinken told the war cabinet, quote, you need to evacuate fewer people from their homes, be more accurate in the attacks, not hit UN facilities, and ensure that there are enough protected areas for civilians. And if not, then not to attack there if there is a civilian population, a close quote. When Defense Minister Yoav Gallant told Blinken that Israeli society was united behind the goal of eliminating Hamas, even if it does take months, Blinken reportedly responded, quote, I don't think you have the credit for that, end quote. So, Walter, is this kind of an example of what the Israelis call a bear hug, where you shower your ally with support, but by controlling the flow of that support, you leverage your influence toward the actual goal of limiting their operations, maybe in some of the same ways we've seen in Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's, I think the Biden administration, which, you know, is, is actually composed of some extremely competent 
diplomats from a sort of professional point of view has really learned how to, on the one hand, get credit for supporting Israel and supporting Ukraine, but on the other hand, really twist their arms to make sure that they behave in ways that work from the standpoint of the Biden administration. In fact, my last column in the journal uh, was was pointing to this, that there's been reports in the German press that Chancellor Schultz and President Biden have determined that what they want to do is, is force Zelensky into negotiations with Russia in 2024, and that the chosen method of doing this is to restrict the arms shipments that go to uh, Zelensky, go to Ukraine, so that basically the Ukrainians have no hope of military victory and and therefore have to enter into negotiation. In the same way, and I think using some of the same techniques, the Biden administration is on the one hand emerging as Israel's strongest international supporter, but also using the leverage that it has with the Israelis to say, okay, you, you, you can only do X, you can't do X plus. And in both cases, uh, you can see how it serves at least, you know, the, the, the national interest as the Biden administration sees it. They are in vis-a-vis Russia. They don't see a path to a Ukrainian victory. And what they are defined as driving Russia out of the occupied territories. Therefore, you know, their goal is a stalemate, which would leave Ukraine essentially independent and ultimately maybe aligned with NATO, but would also give Putin what he's been able to take and hold. In the same way in Israel, they um, they don't object, I think, really to some punishment of Hamas. Uh, what I think President Biden was genuinely horrified by what happened on October the 7th and the revelations about the mistreatment of hostages and so on have, have, if anything, I think strengthened that impression for the president. But at the same time, um, they don't want to see the Biden administration really doesn't want to see this crisis uh, doing anything to ignite a larger regional crisis, bring Iran closer into the conflict create political instability in the Arab world. And so it is very, very easy to limit Israeli actions. And it has options to do that. Uh, Israel would need U.S. supply uh, to keep on at the level of intensity that we saw in the early weeks of their uh, attacks in Gaza. We've seen a lot of commentary both around Ukraine and the war in Gaza that What we're witnessing maybe is the difference between the U.S. ally or U.S. partner actually doing the fighting and that their goal is military victory and the U.S. itself in the role of great power patron whose goal is not victory for one side or the other, but essentially extending enough support to quiet the demands of certain constituencies like you alluded to without committing to any particular military or political outcome. Do you you see that in those terms? And if so, how kind of strategically smart is that, regardless of how tactically successful we've been? Yeah, that I think is is really the question. And the Biden people, as far as I can tell, still see themselves as trying to administer a stable international system. 
that yes, the United States faces more contention and more pressure from countries like Russia, China, and Iran than it used to, but what these countries seek is disturbance. And therefore, if we can have stability, then we are doing our job. If we, you know, the quieter things are, um, the, the, the more America is getting what it wants. That was a much smarter way to think about things in 1995 than today. At least it seems that way to me, because I think we do face a, a concerted uh, effort by these countries to progressively degrade the international system and the, uh, the structures of stability that exist. And what really happens then is you get, it sort of enables all of these countries to follow their own version of, of what the Chinese call the cabbage leaf strategy, where the Chinese say, look, we haven't wanted to trigger an overwhelming American response because that would be a war that we might lose. But so the idea is you you expand like a cabbage leaf grows by adding a new leaf. A cabbage a head of cabbage grows by adding new leaves. So it's getting bigger all the time, but slowly so that it doesn't nothing happens that triggers that big response. But you just continue to improve your position. And I think that is that seeking stability as your as your prime and essentially almost only goal in the kind sort of situation that we're in allows Iran. Iran has followed its own version of a cabbage leaf strategy in the Middle East more aggressively, maybe than the Chinese, but uh, because it's it's aware the U.S. is trying to get out of the Middle East, so our tolerance is higher. But if you look at how Iran has turned. Hezbollah into a very formidable force. The Houthis in Yemen, they've been hide, trying to hijack boats in the Red Sea. They're, they're sending missiles, not just to Saudi Arabia, but in the direction of Israel. And of course, Hamas, uh, which is far more capable and more aggressive than it's ever been, etc. Meanwhile, they're continuing to creep toward nuclear weapons. They're, so they're, they're following this strategy if Obama's goal, sorry, Biden's goal is simply stability, then what that means is the cabbage leaf strategy will work, that you that you push and push and push until you think you've got the Americans, you know, so far that, you know, if you really go any further, they will do something. And so you stop there and wait. And then, you know, the time will come, you push a little more. So, this, I think, is how Putin is, you know, eating Ukraine bite by bite. Maybe he'd have rather gulped the whole thing, but it looks as if we'll see him end up, if Biden's strategy works as it seems to be working, with more territory than he had in 2014, which is more territory than he had in, in 2012, etc., uh, probably moving closer to consolidate Belarus into Russia. So slowly, slowly pushing forward. And this is the pursuit of a stability that actually undercuts the American position and under, undercuts our capability to maintain stability for the long run. That's what I'm worried about. All right. That does it for the big conversation, but it's an excellent segue into the tip of the week. 
Henry Kissinger died on Wednesday, Walter, at the age of 100. You knew Kissinger for a long time, and we have a column on him to look forward to from you in the Wall Street Journal soon. So we're going to table our conversation about Kissinger on what really matters until next episode. But until then, while our listeners wait for that, give us your favorite book or article of his that they should read in the meantime, the one that you think best captured the quality of his thought and experience. Oh, the the book that gives you the most insight into Henry would be A World Restored. This is a book he wrote about the Congress of Vienna and uh, in 1814 and the diplomacy that followed in the next uh, oh, five or 10 years. And it is, you know, some for some readers, it's going to be a bit of a deep dive. You want to keep your Wikipedia open so that you can check and find out like who was this castle who the heck was castle uh and you have to sort of you know if, if you if you if you're not already literate in that in that period but it is a brilliant exposition of statecraft particularly of anglo-american statecraft, or, or put it this way how diplomacy and democracy or at least pluralism uh intersect that you have these English statesmen who, on the one hand, they've got public opinion at home and public opinion at home has, you know, let's not get too involved in Europe. Let's not get too involved with despotisms and so on. But then you also have international opinion, the, the, the society of states. There's there, there are the things that, you know, you've got to work with Russia, you've got to work with, with Austria, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to somehow mediate between what diplomacy has to be in the international sphere and then what your own public opinion, which is sometimes moralistic, sometimes isolationist, whatever it may be, what people want at home. You as the diplomat, as the leader, it's up to you to bridge that gap, and it's really hard. This is, I think, it's a it's a great exposition, but also it's uh, it's this wonderful thing. This is really the only book I think that Kissinger wrote where he wasn't aware that he was a public figure with a reputation to enhance or a uh, a record to defend. This is a brilliant young person discovering and delighting in their extraordinary powers of mind and there's a playfulness with the language uh, he was all his life he was actually a very very witty person and uh you know loved humor and always had you know could be quite funny on occasion uh, this is really of all of his books this is the one that reveals that side of it. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom, and Will Cummings at Hudson. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.